as we emerge from the crisis, it is a really stark example about why these issues around building better workplaces for our employees are not just nice to do things. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hi, everyone. This show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. So today we welcome Tina Chen to skim from the couch. She is the CEO and president of Time's Up, an advocacy organization that was founded in the wake of the Me Too movement. Tina has focused on issues of gender equality and diversity throughout her career. A lawyer by trade, She has also been a political aide as chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama and the executive director for the White House Council on Women and Girls. Tina, thank you for being here today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. I also, it sounds like a dog is very excited to be here as well. (laughs) We we invite all background noises in the time of COVID. We're all dealing with it. Yes. Well, I'm delighted uh, to be here. Well, Tina, as Danielle said, we're so excited. So let's start with the way we like to start all interviews, which is skim your resume for us. Well, really quickly, uh, my first job out of college was in Springfield, Illinois, working for Illinois state government in the Bureau of the Budget, newly married, but more interestingly with my extracurriculars in those days, which was to work on the campaign to ratify the ERA, where Springfield was the national hotbed and was really my introduction, I think, to gender equity issues and the women's movement, which is been a lifelong then passion. Then I went to law school in Chicago, joined a big national law firm, Skadnarp, where I stayed, shockingly to me, for 23 years. Wow. You know, I had my son, got divorced, adopted my daughter as a single parent, and then, you know, still kept up doing women's politics and democratic politics. And along the way, met like two people from the south side of Chicago long enough ago that the three of us don't remember how we met, you know, a man and his wife with a funny sounding name, big ears, always supported his campaigns. Lo and behold, he gets elected president in 2008 and he asked me to join his administration. And then when the president of the United States asked you to pick up your family, move halfway across the country, you do it. And so I went to the Obama White House, started there working for Pally Jarrett. Who we've had on this show as well. Oh, well, Valerie is a dear friend and we go back long ways to when our children were little. I worked and ran the outreach office. At the same time, we both started working with the president of the White House Council on Women and Girls and she was chair and I was executive director for the whole eight years. And after two years, Mrs. Obama asked me to move over from the West Wing, where the president's office is, to the East Wing, where the first lady's office is, and become her chief of staff. So for the last six years, in addition to being the White House Council Women and Girls Executive Director, I was also Mrs. Obama's Chief of Staff. And then Valerie and I walked out. We were one of the last people from the Obama administration to walk out of the White House on Inauguration Day in 2017. And since then, I took some time off, went back to a law practice where I actually specialized in helping companies build better workplace practices. And along, I really literally started at three weeks before the first Harvey Weinstein article appeared. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> Good timing. And then got involved very early on with what would become Time's Up, you know, after the Weinstein articles, you know, helped put together the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and then just this past November, people prevailed on me and I, you know, left the law practice and became the full-time president and CEO for Time's Up. Tina, you have such an amazing career and have done such interesting once in a lifetime things more than once. What is something that is not in your official bio or LinkedIn that we should know about you? Uh, <laughs> all right. So the thing is, that is like a really like, you know, this, 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 the secret that you never really talk about is I'm like a total sci-fi geek. Like, no, no way, really? Like, really? We, we are a Marvel, we are a Marvel <laughs> Universe family, I have to say, with all apologies to the DC Universe fans out there. <laughs> I support you. And I also want to say in the beginning, as a Chicagoan, I love interviewing people from Chicago. So just extra happy to have you today. This is Danielle's way to like isolate me from the show. She does this every time we have somebody from the Midwest. So Tina, we like to start off with talking about people's childhoods, because how you grew up you know, shapes so much of all of us. So let's talk about how you grew up in Ohio, the daughter of Chinese refugees. What was it like growing up? What was your family like? So I'm the oldest daughter of two, me and my sister. As you mentioned, my parents were Chinese refugees that came to the United States in 1949, you know, in the wake of World War II and the Chinese Civil War, and really left behind most of their family, right, their parents. They had a couple of siblings here in the States, but they were really cut off from their family and friends in their, you know, young 20s. My dad actually had heard about the discrimination that a lot of his friends and family had experienced on the East and West Coasts, and he thought it was because that's where the large concentrations of Chinese were. So he decided to settle us where there were no Chinese, like literally <laughs> in, in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. There are literally six families, I think, on the east side of Cleveland back in the 50s and 60s. So we grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. I was very much the curiosity. I have a you know, vivid recollection of sort of being, you know, the kid that everybody stared at in the grocery store, um, which actually built up this resilience to become like the only woman sitting in a board meeting. I think a lot of my ability to do that actually came from having lived through that as being the other person and the curiosity in the classroom for so long. My mother, I remember, she was like, you know, very popular in my high school because my mother would bring egg rolls to whatever fundraiser we were doing. You know, my parents are product of old China and my dad was in some ways very traditional and expected boys actually as, as traditional Chinese fathers do. But to his credit, when he had two girls, he poured all of his ambition into my sister and me and really raised us with that ambition and that drive and the desire and also the feeling that we would always have support from home, which was a great gift when you have that as a child. Can you tell us about the summer camp? <laughs> so my parents, realizing that they were alone in the Midwest, but wanting their kids to have some connection to Chinese culture, got together with some other friends, some folks living in Chicago, some folks from Indiana. And literally now at this point, it was 63 years ago, created a Chinese family camp 
for one week a year where the entire family, you didn't just get send the kids away, the entire family went, the parents did communal cooking and taught classes. We called each other cousins and all the parents were aunties and uncles. That's so amazing that they did that. It was, and it has continued unbroken. We have our, our you know, kids growing up in it have been raising our kids in the camp for 63 years. The hilarious thing about it is they found a campsite in central Indiana in Amish country. <laughs> so you can imagine it's like in 1960 and a hundred Chinese people, you know, once a year will descend into central Indiana Amish country. <laughs> it was pretty fun, but it was a great way to have that extended family and a connection to my Chinese culture that I would not have otherwise had just being one of six families in Cleveland, Ohio. When you were growing up, what did you think you were going to be when you were older? Not a lawyer. There were no lawyers kind of in our family with a lot of doctors and professors. So I think actually, had I not been like really terrible at math, I might have gone the doctor route, which many of actually my first cousins have done. But somewhere along the line, I remember, I think it was because I was interested in politics. I was always interested in politics. My dad was very political. I remember when I was 12 years old, I volunteered for the Eugene McCarthy campaign (laughs) as a 12-year-old. So that political government piece was always kind of around in my head. And that's what eventually led to being a lawyer, you know, after my stint working for state government after college. But my dad was disappointed when I called him and told him I'd gotten into law school instead of being really excited. He was like, really? Law school? (laughs) So let's talk about being a lawyer because you were a lawyer for decades. And when you said that in your intro, you were like, you know, I can't believe that I worked there for over 20 years. What was that workplace environment like? And you've talked about, you know, how you, and I think like a lot of our audience are are women who are trying to navigate working in places where there is kind of this more traditional corporate environment. You were in a place like that for over 20 years and you had a kid and were a single mom and adopted a kid. How did you think about navigating that? I need to set the stage a little bit by talking about the law firm I joined. So Skadden Arps is now known as one of the probably world's leading corporate law firms. It's known in the corporate world as the law firm that you go to when you've got a big deal, you've got a big issue. When I joined it in 1985, it was still sort of smaller. Um, So it wasn't the powerhouse law firm that it is today, although it was up and coming at the time, and started by actually a lot of upstart Jewish lawyers who could not get into the downtown white shoe Wall Street firms because of anti-Semitism, you know, back at the time Skadden was formed about 60 plus years ago. So to its credit, even though it now has the reputation of a big corporate Wall Street firm, it was actually started by some guys who understood what it was like to be an outsider. So people really tolerated. They loved that I was political, but it was also a tough environment, meaning there were very few people of color, very few women of color, very few women, period, doing the work. And yet I found the work incredibly stimulating. There's a lot of folks who go to big law firms now who don't like the work and find it boring and find it going through a lot of documents. And I've often told such young lawyers, look, that's part of how you learn how to do the work. You know, you don't instantly walk in and say, I'm going to go to trial and be a trial lawyer and walk into the courtroom and lead a case in your first year. You have to, like any good craft, learn the craft. And some of that involves, you know, 
doing some of what we used to call the scut work and like go through the documents. I often said, I'm in a position now to tell CEO, I'm going through your emails because I know what I'm going to find only because I read thousands of emails. Today, they're, you know, not just in the legal industry, but in any industry, there is sort of the controversy when you tell somebody they have to pay their dues. And what you're talking about is the equivalent of paying your dues in a law firm. When you think about creating ideal workplace cultures or close to ideal as possible, how do you respond when you hear kind of the pushback around when people say you have to pay your dues? I think there's different ways to do that. And what I'm describing is the part of paying your dues that is about learning the craft, right? Doing the deep work that allows you over time to work your way up from reading all the documents to reading a summary of the documents to only getting the key documents given to you, right? In the case of a lawyer, trial lawyer, as I was. That's one form of paying your dues that I think is about learning how to do your job well. It's it's what doctors do, right? Then when they learn and they work their way up from minor kinds of surgeries to something that's more serious. What's not acceptable in paying your dues though is running the gauntlet of bad behavior. You know, there's also a way that people talk about paying your dues as saying, look, I had to endure people telling terrible jokes. I had to endure getting terrible assignments, not because I was learning my craft, but because I was a woman and people didn't trust me on the better assignments. Or I had to endure bringing in the coffee, right, for every meeting in order to get into the meeting. Again, not because that was part of learning my craft and every junior person had to do it, but because I was a woman. That aspect of paying your dues is not acceptable, right? That's what we're fighting for. And Time's Up is to create workplaces where everybody's respected, able, and empowered to reach their full potential and not held back by the kinds of unconscious bias or conscious bias that occurs in workplaces. When you were going through the law firm and rising in the ranks, what was your confidence level? What was your personality? What were you like? And how did you react when you saw things that maybe were not appropriate or stories that shouldn't have been shared or jokes that shouldn't have been told? So... I think I had the benefit. I was a little bit older than my peers because remember I had worked for a few years before I went back to law school. And that's very common now. Back in the 80s when I was doing this, it was not common at all. So I think I went into the job, you know, always three or four years older in my chronological age than my peers. So I think that helped me. You know, it wasn't my first workplace. So I could weather some of the things that came my way a little bit easier. I think I was secondly, as I mentioned earlier, I think I was equipped in ways I wasn't even conscious of to be the other person, to be the curiosity, because that's what I had had as a kid, right? Without even knowing that that's what I was going through at the time, I absorbed how to just let things roll off your back and not to be self-conscious when you walk into a room and you know everybody's staring at you and saying, what are you doing here, right? Because I, at some level, felt that all my entire life. And that's a lot of what you have to do to work your way through some workplaces is just let things roll off your back and not let the external images of what's happening to you in a room get inside your head, right, and undermine your confidence. So I think as a result, to your question about confidence, a lot of the things that threw other people off, I think, did not throw me off because... I'd had some age and I'd had some prior experiences that let me do it. And then over time, you learn not to let them throw you off. So 
you sort of have to find your own voice and your own strategy. You decide to transition into government. Was that scary? I mean, you had worked your way up and then were trying something totally new. Oh, terrifying. I mean, I never thought I would leave SCAD. I was happy there, actually. I've been there 23 years. I was by then, you know, a well-established partner. I knew my way around. I had partners that were my dear friends and a support system. And, you know, it was not only leaving that law firm, but leaving Chicago. I mean, I have a home that I loved, a neighborhood my kids loved. They were in schools that they loved. That's pretty terrifying and not something I ever thought that I would do. But as I said earlier, you know, it's the president of the United States calling you, right? I probably wouldn't have done it for anything else. Um, and, and you know, after the election, you know, people were saying, where are you going to go to Washington? Because everybody knew I had been so involved with his campaign. And I really thought to myself, look, I'm pretty settled. I don't need to go to Washington just to go hang out in Washington. I'm perfectly happy to continue to support him from Chicago. But if it's something that will be really important and that he really needs me to do, then yes, of course, I would go. And that's what this was, you know, going to work actually literally in the West Wing. So my first office was on the second floor of the West Wing, just above the Oval Office. And it turned out, you know, that job running the Office of Public Engagement in the first two years was amazing because if you think back, right, we're, we're just past the 10-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. That was passed while I was running the outreach office for the president. And what we did for ACA was I was the group that brought in all the hospitals and the nurses and the healthcare advocates, you know, as we were crafting the bill. And then as we were trying to pass the bill, if you remember the picture, one of my favorite pictures of the bill signing for the ACA, there's this little boy standing next to the president. He had tragically lost his mom because she didn't have health insurance, but Marcellus and his grandmother came to Washington. It's my team that found them, that got them there. And I still remember they showed up and Marcellus didn't have an outfit to wear to the bill signing. So it was my team that took him down the street to Macy's, bought him the suit and the purple tie that he's wearing in that picture. And then in our bathroom across from my office in the ladies room, just before the bill signing, worth helping Marcellus put on that outfit before he went down to then stand next to the president of the United States and take this iconic picture on this tremendously historic day in our country's history. I'm going to ask a question for all of my lawyer friends out there. I rarely hear from my friends who are lawyers that they love working for their firm, no matter what firm it is. You, you know, were different in that you love the firm, didn't think you would leave and then left to go work in the West Wing. What skills did you bring with you? Because I think that's sometimes something that holds people back is not thinking that what they've been doing for so long in an industry is transferable. Oh, that's a great question because it was terrifying. As much as I had done politics, within a week of getting to Washington, D.C., I realized that as political as I had been in Chicago, I had no idea how Washington worked even if you're a very involved, informed person as I thought I was. So I really quickly realized I was in the deep end of the pool (laughs) with, with not a lot of precedent for anything that I was going to do, except to your point, I did harken back and I realized, for example, that the president and the first lady were like my CEO clients, right? Once I realized I needed to treat them the way I treated my CEO clients with 
How did I need to prepare them? What level of information and detail did I need to give them? What level of research did I need to do to take into the meetings that I was going into? What questions did I need to ask of my staff so that they could do the work to better hone our arguments? You know, and a lot of what I was doing is how do you make a good argument for the position that you take? Well, that's what you learn how to do as a lawyer in ways that I had not fully appreciated until I got there that was, to your point, directly transferable. Um, and I think, quite frankly, made me better able to pretty quickly adapt. Even though I was in the deep end of the pool, it didn't take me that long to sort of figure out where are the levers of power? How do you pull them? How do I pull them really effectively for what I wanted to do? What was your most stressful day in the White House? What, what was the day where you closed your door and you were just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> I mean, there really were. There were there were a lot of them. One of the most conflicting days I had early on was the day that Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually passed the Senate. So this was on a Saturday. And they were going to call both Don't Ask, Don't Tell, so the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and the Dreamers Act, both of those bills, on a Saturday. And both my teams had been working on that. I had a team that had been doing immigration and a team that had been doing Donuts Don't Tell. And my Donuts Don't Tell team, immigration teams were all sitting together, were watching the votes. Donuts Don't Tell, I think, came up first and it passes and we're thrilled. And then the immigration votes come and it fails. And my team is devastated because we had gotten to know these dreamer kids. These were real kids to us that we knew who, if this vote failed, were in danger of leaving the only country they ever knew, right? Because they've been brought here as children. And they were crying. My Donuts and Tell team was trying to control themselves, right? Because we're thrilled. And Brian Bond, who was leading the Donuts and Tell repeal, who was our LGBTQ liaison, and I start to leave the office to go downstairs to the Oval. Because Valerie's in the Oval with the president is watching this. We ran into him in the stairway coming up. He was coming to us. He knew both teams were together in this office on the second floor of the West Wing. And he was coming to us because he wanted not only to speak to the Don't Ask, Don't Tell team, but he knew the immigration team needed his words of encouragement and his support. And that was, that was sort of an amazing, that just juxtaposition of highs and lows happening within minutes of each other is something we actually had a lot of um, and you can never, could never predict. I want to talk about something more personal for you, which is you've had very demanding jobs and high-profile jobs, and you've done that as a single mom. I can only imagine the different days that might have been harder than others as your kids reach different milestones. And I think especially in the world we're living in right now with all the things happening with COVID-19, it's put a, a special spotlight on the burden that single parents face. What was your support system? How did you navigate a demanding job and also being there for your family? So I was lucky. And I think about this all the time in the working families work that I do is that I was lucky. I was a lawyer working with a really good salary at a law firm where I had three months of paid maternity leave. It was just maternity leave at the time, but I had it. You know, when my son was born, I got another three months when I adopted my daughter and I had the resources to pay for full-time childcare in my home. When I had my son, I hired somebody who stayed with me till I moved to DC. So she stayed with me for over 20 years. When I adopted my daughter, because I was at that point 
my, my first childcare person had her own child. I was doing a lot of traveling. I hired a second person so that they could switch off and have shifts. But that's because I had the ability to, to pay her, right? To, to have those resources. And that's the only way I did it, right? Because, you know, not only as a lawyer, but my goodness, working in the White House, the hours that I would have to keep and the unpredictability of a schedule, it would have been impossible and I'm not sure I would have lasted. But I think about that a lot because, and I especially see it now in COVID-19 times, you know, how many workers in our country don't even have paid sick leave, let alone paid family leave when they've got a new child or a sick parent or they themselves are sick and don't have the means to pay for childcare. You know, we're in a situation where, you know, putting your kid in a childcare center is as expensive as it is to send your kid to college in some states. So that's how I did it. And without that support system, especially since my parents passed away, my son was very little. I didn't live near any of my blood relatives, although I have a wonderful network of girlfriends and friends. You make your family a lot of times in life. And I do have a wonderful, wonderful extension of that made family of friends. But especially when you think about your kids, that, that constant childcare where you know they're safe and you know they're with people that love them, was a real gift that I had that millions and millions of workers in our country do not have. How have you as a manager given advice to young women who you see struggling with how to balance these things? Some of my message is to go easy on yourself. (laughs) What I used to advice I used to say is like, you know, realize that you can't do it all, which I I mean it this way. I'm sort of, some people give the advice, like you can have it all, but not at the same time, right? So come in and out of your job, which I believe in, by the way. But I also think if you are somebody like me who realized, actually my my maternity leaves were very reaffirming to me for my career choice because I was a terrible stay-at-home mom. I realized I would be much happier and good for my children if I went back to work. But then, you know, there were moments, as I said, I had a hole in my second floor bathroom ceiling for 10 years. Literally, it was there when we, <laughs> we, 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 had a, we had a plumbing leak in the third floor bathroom. We had to cut a hole in the second floor bathroom. So it sat there for 10 years, literally until after I redid the house when I moved back from D.C. But it was like that was one of the things that you just let go because it wasn't that important. It's a second floor bathroom. Nobody goes to the second floor, right, when they come to my house as guests. Nobody would see it except me and my family. It wasn't doing anything. It was perfectly functional. I love that you did that. (laughs) Right? So those are the things I think you have to give yourself some leeway on as a a parent, right, is not to worry about. There was also a period of time, and I learned this from my cousin who had four kids, where my children went to school in the clothes that they slept in. (laughs) Because they were toddlers, and they loved wearing the same clothes. They loved sleeping in them. That's basically my wardrobe today. <laughs> I was just every day this, yeah. <laughs> this quarantine. I remember saying this in a gathering where the moms were all sharing at you know some like school event, and I said this. I said, "Do you know I'm sending my children to our class in the, in the clothes they slept in?" And half of them were horrified, and half of them were, "Oh my god, that's brilliant!" <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your advocacy work, both as. Um, you know, the work that you did, especially with education and girls for the first lady, but also in regards to what you're doing now with Time's Up. We've heard this phrase come up when you when you think about what you were doing with um, Mrs. Obama, which is the importance of measurable impact. What does that mean? 
I learned that from her, uh, by the way, because she was very clear with us that if we were going to design an initiative for her to spend her time on, that, you know, it had to have measurable outcomes. She was not one for uh, just a feel-good campaign, right, or just a PR campaign. It had to be something that people on the ground could actually see the results of. And yet I also knew that when you're dealing with somebody like the First Lady, when you're dealing somebody with, with folks like the people who have been committed to Time's Up, um, you also need to do things that operate at scale because affecting just 20 or 30 people at a time wasn't going to be good enough. Um, and that's hard to do. It's hard to develop things that will operate at scale and yet have tangible, measurable on the ground impact. Um, and that's sort of what we tried to do then with each of the initiatives that we did from Mrs. Obama with Let's Move and Joining Forces for Veterans and Military Families, Reach Higher for Kids Going to College, and then as you referenced, Let Girls Learn, which was our last one, which is to support adolescent girls' education around the world. And then what I'm doing at Time's Up, right, which is also to be building better workplaces that will finally end sexual harassment and support sexual harassment victims, not just one or two at a time, but at scale and at workplaces across the country. And that's what I've been trying to do. Um, but it takes, you know, it takes really some careful thinking about how do you craft not just a PR campaign on a rounded issue, but actual strategic changes that will have lasting impact. How do you think your leadership style has changed from the White House to Time's Up? A lot of what I learned at the White House, I'm actually applying at Time's Up in ways that I had no idea that I was going to. I had no ex expectation. I'd never run a not-for-profit before. I've been on lots of not-for-profit boards. I've been donors of not-for-profits. I've never run one full-time before. So this is new. But I'm finding there's a lot that is transferable from the White House to this. Um, like I said, I mean, I didn't realize, but I do think of my Time's Up leadership, right? So it's our founders, you know, people like Oprah and Shonda Rhimes and Katie McGrath and others through multiple industries, not just entertainment, who have put their brands behind Time's Up to power Time's Up. They're like Mrs. Obama. They're my principals. They are these folks who have tremendous voices and megaphones, and they are willing to commit them two times up to whom I owe the obligation as the CEO now of building strategies and messages and campaigns that are worthy of their platforms and the trust that they have put in me to do that and be smart about it. And then I owe it to the millions of workers out there who we're working for to design strategies that will actually work for them, that aren't just a Twitter campaign, but that are things that will bring paid sick leave to them, right? To speak of the issue that we're currently working on so vigorously in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. You know, our goal there isn't just a headline around, you know, paid sick leave, but we need to actually have paid sick leave provided, not just during the crisis, but on a permanent basis for, workers, tens of billions of workers across the country. I mean, here's the thing, you know, as we emerge from the crisis, we're going to have to deal with these issues and make sure these issues aren't backburgered. It's just nice to do things when times are good. Now, these are essential workplace ba basic functions that need to be incorporated in how we build our workplaces, even as we're rebuilding after this crisis. Because, for example, if every company had had paid sick leave when we went into the crisis, we wouldn't be scrambling right now, right? They would have had those costs already baked into their business plans. Workers would already know they had paid sick leave and they'd be able to take it 
right? When they got sick. It is a really stark example about why these issues around building better workplaces for our employees are not just nice to do things. They are essential to build resilient workforces and workplaces for the future. What's your advice for people who are trying to get better at managing up? Because when I think about the people you've had to manage up to, it's president, a first lady, you just went through the people involved with Time's Up. It's a cast of characters. What would you say people need to get really good at? So that's a good question. I mean, it it goes back to a question you asked earlier about what did I learn at the law firm? Always be prepared, right? Like to have done all my research and know all of the issues going into a meeting with a CEO or going into a meeting with a senior partner, right? When I was a young associate. And I think that is the key to managing up is you have to be prepared if you're the person who is responsible for briefing or explaining or trying to convince somebody to do something that you want them to do is you have to go in prepared. And it is to relate to another question you asked earlier, a lot about that, learn your craft and learn your scut work. Because if you haven't done the work as a young person in the workplace to know how to do research, right? To know where to find the information. When you get to my level, even if I'm relying on the material that someone else has prepared for me, because I used to do the work, I can see when something's missing. You will wind up using five to 10% of the material you have prepared right? But you have to learn to be okay with that. And sometimes I think young people also get frustrated with that. Well, why am I preparing with 80 to 90% of the stuff that isn't ever going to be used? Well, that's because you never know which five to 10% is going to come up in the meeting. And this is also what helps you as a young person, as a woman, as a person of color, for example, going into unfamiliar territory, is to know that you are prepared on 100% of the issues is what also gives you the confidence to overcome the biases that you may be confronting when you first walk into the meeting because you're a woman or a person of color. Because you know, you know the 100%. And it doesn't matter what they throw at you. You know you have the material. And that's confidence. And that is also worth preparing even across that 80 to 90% that never gets discussed in the meeting. And that's, I think, the key and most important piece to managing up, right, or going into meeting with a principal. I think that is a great way to transition to our final segment, the lightning round. We're going to do a remote drum roll. Morning person or night owl? Oh, night owl. West wing or east wing? Oh, east wing, of course. Since we're all working from home, what is your biggest productivity hack? Oh, all right. So I don't know if it's a productivity hack or not, but I will say the thing I've been doing is I bought a Peloton a year and a half ago. I've been only sporadic on it. However, my commitment during this is to go down and do it every morning, even when I don't feel like it. Cody Rigsby is my guy. (laughs) So I have actually been doing that. And I do think it helps make the rest of the day go better. What is your favorite quick dinner to make? I do a great ground beef, peppers, onions, garlic. Okay, last question. What's your shameless plug? Well, of course, time's up. You know, join now. If anybody wants to just stay up to date, I paid sick leave on what's happening to workers. We're doing a campaign right now to thank our frontline women, you know, the 83%, for example, who are out there in healthcare fields on the front lines of this. Um, but you can do it by just texting now 
the word now to 30644 to just find out. There's no membership fee. This is just being part of Time's Up and this movement to help build better workplaces for everyone. Tina, thank you so much. It's been a great thing to do on a COVID-19 day. Thank you, guys. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name's Ariel Wengroff. I'm a co-founder and chief content and community officer at ARFA. ARFA is a personal care company. We co-create products and brands with people like you and me around the country. We believe that if you are going to put something on your body every day and have a really long-lasting relationship with it, you should understand and be a part of why it exists in the world. And we also believe for those insights, you should benefit as a stakeholder. So we give our collective members, which are these people around the country, profit share for their participation in the brands and products we create together. ARFA launched on March 10th. So we were able to launch right before COVID really overtook the United States um, in a way that none of us anticipated. And our first brand is Hickey, which is a genderless everyday sweat brand that was created in response to our collective's wants and needs. We'd originally anticipated launching Hickey as a brand for sale, but due to COVID, we no longer felt like that was the right thing to do. Um, the world had clearly changed. And so with the resources we had with COVID and with our team working remote, we launched the brand, not for sale, but as a giveaway to give our resources to first responders and people affected by COVID around the nation. Um, And in addition, we also gave Hickey away to people who shared a message of kindness around the country. Um, So if they, you know, tagged on social ARFA brands or Hickey for anybody, and did the hashtag today I'm feeling, you know, we believe that right now is the time to increase kindness and empathy and honesty on social. You know, ARFA's mission is helping people stay comfortable in their own skin. And so we wanted to figure out a way to continue to do that during the COVID pandemic. The skin community can help Hickey and ARFA by simply spreading kindness on social media with the hashtag today I'm feeling to continue to share honesty and kindness and build community, which we all really need. And of course, can go to hickey.com to purchase your genderless everyday sweat products for that summer heat. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 